Fundraising everywhere. 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 Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast, where we give you a glimpse into one of our amazing webinars or conferences. You can check out one of our full sessions and get a 50% discount by using the code FEPODCAST at fundraisingeverywhere.com. Yep, just head to the Fundraising Everywhere website and use the code FEPODCAST at the checkout to get 50% off any of our sessions. Hello, you're all very, very welcome. Thank you for joining us today for this free webinar uh, where we'll be talking about all things legacy fundraising, specifically top legacy fundraising strategies from scientific research. We are revisiting this session uh, from Dr. Russell James because it's fantastic. Dr. Russell James, really great uh, published author, loads of published research on, on uh, legacy giving and around fundraising. Um, and some really, really great stuff uh, in this session. So we're going to be here, and we've also got a few experts here live with us to chat. We'll get into that in a second. First of all, I just want to welcome everyone. Uh, if you've never been to a fundraising event before, then uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming here. If you're returning, then hello. Nice to see you again. Um, and if you're a member, if you're a fundraising ever a member, then special shout out to you. You know we love you, so I always like to give you a, a special shout out. Um, if you haven't been here before or you've forgotten how things work, you will see the chat box there uh, just to the side of me. Um, why don't you go ahead and test out that check, chat box if you want to put in perhaps your name and perhaps where you're tuning in from. That would be great. Um, because I really want you to get the most of this session, do throw your questions into that chat box um, at any stage throughout the webinar. Uh, we have a few people in the chat box who will be there to answer, and then we'll have a live Q&A um, after the main session here, uh, where we will try to get through all your questions. So I can see people are beginning to use the chat box. So hello, Daniel. Hello, Elaine from Scotland. Uh, we've got Chrissy here. Mandy, hi Mandy, a few more people tuning in, great. So yeah, if you haven't used the chat box, do say hello. It's always nice to see some friendly names and friendly faces in there and do throw your questions because uh, live join us today, unfortunately, I suppose mainly because of the time difference, Dr. Russell James will not be able to join us from the United States, um, but we do have the fantastic Dr. Claire Routley and Ashley Rothon here live with us. They'll be floating around in the chat box. They'll be uh, answering some live questions on screen with us later. Uh, Dr. Claire Routley is amazing. Uh, Claire is my go-to person for legacies. I think she's just one of the greatest in the world. Um, and I cannot gush enough kindness on her. Ashley's okay as well. No, Ashley is amazing, of course, as well. Uh, Ashley is coming to us from Legacy Futures. And Legacy Futures are our partners uh, for the Legacy Summit that is coming up. Now, if you don't know about this, the Legacy Fundraising Summer Summit is our bigger conference, our bigger virtual conference which is happening on 16th of February. And we really, really hope you will join us for that. You can purchase tickets. You'll see a button underneath me. You can just click on that button and you'll be able to purchase tickets either during the event or right after the event. Um, we've got loads of great sessions at that, loads of amazing bonus resources. Um, and it's about three hours across two rooms of amazing content all around legacy giving. So if you're into legacies, if that's your thing, uh, if that's your buzz, if that's your hang, as they might say, if you're a Limmy fan from Scotland, um, then uh, do book uh, and join us for that, okay? Um, right, let's see who else we got before we start. I see Katie, I see Helene, uh, Katie, a different Katie, Jenny, Brian, great. Okay, cool. So the chat box is working, everyone's here. As I said, throw your questions in there because the fantastic Ashley Rothorn and Claire Routley will be there um, to answer questions throughout or after this, this session from Dr. Russell James will be coming back on screen to answer those questions. So do make the most of it, throw in your own questions, uh, queries, and always, there's always helpful people in the chat box as well, you know, not just the speakers, the other attendees, everyone's great at sharing their own experience, their own successes, their own failures, and we can all learn from each other. And that's the point of this, isn't it? But I just want to say thank you one more time for joining us. Um, and we're going to head on straight across now to Dr. Russell James uh, before we come back for a live Q&A. So over to you, Russell.
Thanks for joining me. I'm going to be sharing some ideas from uh, research and theory that can be useful when it comes to legacy fundraising. But first, we're going to start with a little bit of theory. No, this isn't just your penalty for asking a professor to come speak. It's actually going to be somewhat useful. If you understand a little bit of the why behind how people make these decisions, it allows you to be a bit more flexible in which methodologies that you choose to use. One of the things we know about legacy fundraising, or any legacy decisions for that matter, is that regardless of the words that we use or the terminology, these are strong reminders of personal mortality. And it turns out there's an entire field of experimental research that's devoted to the question of how does it change people's values and preferences when you remind them that they're going to die. I kid you not, this is a real thing. It's called terror management theory. And because of it, we have literally hundreds of experimental results that show us how people respond when we remind them of their mortality, such as talking about their estate planning. And for most people, most of the time, those responses fall into one of two categories. We've got the first stage response, which is avoidance, uh, simply staying away from those death reminders. And the second stage response is called the pursuit of symbolic immortality, where people are looking at how some part of their identity, uh, some part of their family or achievements or life story will continue on after them. So in estate planning, legacy planning, avoidance, well, we know what that looks like. Oh, I'm going to put off that will planning until later. Uh, but we also see the importance of symbolic immortality, where we use permanence and permanence-related language to describe the impact of those gifts. So let's talk about some things we know from research. One of the things we know, and this relates to the avoidance response, is frankly, if you want to have a larger audience, don't lead with death. In other words, a lot of ways that are most effective at communicating information about legacy giving don't necessarily lead with strong death reminders. We can talk about uh, tax-smart ways to give, and one of those tax-smart ways can be giving through your will. Uh, we can talk about uh, various other topics, and along the way, mention the death-related topic. So how might we actually literally ask another human being for a gift and a will? Well, if that makes you nervous, one of the softest, simplest ways to do that is through what I like to call the 4S methodology. That's for three stories and shut up. What might this sound like? Well, I'm here at Texas Tech University, and suppose I was a fundraiser and I was uh, talking to you about leaving a gift at some point in the conversation. What's going to come up is, so what's new at the university? And I might say something like, uh, well, we're really excited about our new basketball coach uh, doing very well this year. And uh, so that's going well and lots of new construction on campus. You know, we're over 40,000 students now, if you can believe that. If you come in the west side, you'll see where those buildings are. Oh, and Mary Smith did a neat thing. Now, did you know Mary? She graduated two years before you. No. Well, Mary spent her whole career helping other people get their finances in order. And she recently signed a new will that one day will create a permanent scholarship for our financial planning students. That's the fourth step. <laughs> you take a drink. You give them a chance to respond. If you've reached somebody at a point in their lives when they're interested in continuing this conversation, you've been able to give them that opportunity to continue it. But notice you didn't lead with death. You led with other things and along the way mentioned the death-related story. Uh, on the other hand, if you've reached somebody at a point in their not lives when they're not interested in continuing that conversation, you've actually accomplished something very important. Uh, you've been able to share a story about another living donor who has included a gift in their will that reflects their life story. And having tested lots of messages to see what's most effective at shifting people's attitudes about leaving a charitable gift in a will, it's actually that, sharing stories about people like them who have included a gift in their will that reflects that person's life story.
You know, another great example of uh, the difference between the response you get when you lead with death versus not leading with death. I was working with one large organization, and they decided they wanted to go after gifts and wills, and they were used to doing these uh, mass appeal letters. So they sent out a mass appeal letter, and it very strongly led with death. It had the standard response card options of, I've already included your organization with a gift in my will, or please contact me about my upcoming death. Well, I mean, that's not exactly the phraseology, but you and I both know that's what it means, right? So the point is they sent out 35,000 of these very strongly leading with death appeal letters, and they got back zero cards. Uh, now, for those of you that don't do this sophisticated econometric analysis like I do in my work, I can translate that for you. That's not a very good response rate. But here's the important part. That same organization, a bit later, decided to do a one-page survey uh, asking about uh, how the donor got connected with their organization, mentioning various projects, asking the donor to rate the importance of those different projects, and then along the way mentioning that uh, people like to support our organizations and organization in a variety of ways. Uh, which of the following uh, have you done or might you consider doing in the future? Uh, and that included a, a gift of cash or by credit card, a, a gift of uh, stock shares, a, a gift in a will, a gift in a will in honor of a loved one, uh, and uh, gift of real estate, other examples. The important part is they were actually asking for the exact same information. Have you included us in your will, or are you interested in doing so? When they sent out this survey, not leading with the death questions, but just including those towards the end of the survey, they got back a 22% response rate. Now, that's the same organization that sent out 35,000 letters and got nothing back when they led with death. But when they led with, lead with something else, uh, the response rate is much higher. In fact, a year later, they resent to those uh, folks that didn't respond, got another 18% response rate. Uh, so again, not leading with death. And we know this from experimental research. For example, uh, in one set of research looking at uh, how do you describe an annuity in a way that makes people want to purchase it, it turns out that people are much more interested in purchasing an annuity that pays a certain amount each year you live, but they're much less interested in purchasing that annuity if it pays a certain amount each year you live until you die. So the idea is whenever we use that death language, we're going to get that avoidance response. And when we get that avoidance response, people will be less interested. Now, the second thing to keep in mind is we want to emphasize lasting social impact that results from the gift. This is very powerful because once we get beyond that avoidance response, the second stage response is pursuit of symbolic immortality. So anytime we can offer opportunities with permanence, that might be a scholarship or a professorship or a lectureship or anything that has that sort of permanence in it, it's going to be very attractive. But it turns out just changing our words makes a big difference. Uh, in one published experimental study, there were uh, two sets of uh, groups. Uh, one was reminded of their death before they made a charitable decision. The other wasn't. Uh, everybody had the same opportunity to give to a poverty relief charity. Uh, however, for half of them, it was described as meeting the immediate needs of people. And for the other half, it was described as creating lasting improvements that would benefit people in the future. So here's the weird thing. For people who weren't reminded of their death, uh, they gave two and a half times more if the charity was described as meeting the immediate needs of people. But if people had been reminded of their mortality first, those results reversed, and now they gave almost three times as much if the charity was described as creating lasting improvements that would benefit people in the future. By the way, in some research that I published, we found that this also connects in with the most powerful message to get people to make a second gift in memory of a deceased loved one. The first gift usually happens around the time of the funeral, but the most powerful message to get a second gift was to report how much had been raised and to set a goal that was a permanence goal. In this case, the goal of creating a permanent scholarship fund rather 
rather than paying all of those funds out to a current year scholarship uh, for the loved one. So permanence is very attractive. What's also very attractive is to present a social norm default. This is the idea that people like me do things like this. Uh, now, many of you may be familiar with the cabinet office study where 3,000 people going through their normal will planning process were randomly assigned uh, to one of three groups, one of which got no reference to charity, and about 5% of those folks included charity. The second group were specifically asked, would you like to leave any money to charity in your will? And over 10% of that group included uh, charity. But the third group got an extra statement. Many of our customers like to leave money to charity in their will. That extra statement then led to more than three times as many people, that is 15.4%, including charity in their will documents. Very powerful when we can talk about what other people want to do. Uh, we also tested that uh, in uh, the U.S., and uh, one of the most uh, powerful ways to to describe a gift in a will is to begin with the phrase, many people like to leave a gift to charity in their will. Uh, and that uh, bumps up uh, the interest. Uh, so do keep in mind, we want to present examples, but those examples are more powerful when they're about people like us. The fourth suggestion is to advance the donor's life story. Now, some of you may know, but I do some really weird research when it comes to legacy giving. And yes, that does include sticking people in brain scanners and have them do their will planning. One of the things we learn from that is that when people are making the charitable decision for their gift in a will, they're engaging visualized autobiography regions of the brain. Uh, now, by the way, we actually didn't need to have a brain scanner to find this out. Uh, Dr. Claire Routley and her in-depth qualitative interviews of legacy donors uh, found that uh, when discussing which charities they had chosen to remember, there was a clear link with the life narratives of many respondents, uh, quoting from her uh, dissertation. So what we see both from the neuroimaging and from the in-depth qualitative interviews is that the decision to leave a legacy gift isn't really about your organization's next project. It's about how this cause connects in with the uh, person's life story. How do we use that to change the way we describe the gift? Well, in one test with almost 10,000 people looking at about 20 different variations of how can you describe a gift in a will, the one that triggered the most interest in actually agreeing to say, yes, I'm interested in doing that now, was asking people to make a gift to charity in your will to support a cause that has been important in your life. When we ask people about making a gift to charity in your will to support causes that have been important in your life, notice it triggers that autobiographical visualization. It triggers life review, and it causes people to think about what causes have been important in my life. And making that connection between their life story and the cause is the most powerful messaging that shifts people's interest in making those gifts and wills. As I mentioned before, when we tested all different kinds of messages, uh, the living donor stories uh, outperformed all other messages. And this was true. We tested this for 40 different large national charities. It was true for every single one of those charitable organizations. So it's really important that we start with, uh, tell me about your connection to the organization. Uh, that is uh, very powerful, very meaningful. Uh, one of the things that uh, we know is that when we can get people to put instructions with their gifts, that makes the gifts more compelling and it can lead to larger gifts. The next suggestion I want to give is this, which is to encourage tribute gifts in wills. Now, this research actually started with Dr. Claire Routley's in-depth qualitative interviews, where she found that in many cases, people were including a charity and even though the gift was to a charity, the gift was actually for a loved one. So when we looked at the language that people were using, they were talking about how they were including a gift to the cancer research because my father died of cancer. Uh, and so what we did is we then tested how does this work as an intervention in a couple of different ways. Uh, first, we asked people about 
their interest in making a gift in a will uh, to a particular organization. And then later, we would ask them about, do you have a family member, uh, either a deceased family member who would have appreciated your support for the cause or a living family member who would appreciate your support for the cause? If so, tell us about that person's connection to the cause. And then we ask them the bequest giving question again, except this time asking them about making that gift honoring the uh, honoring the family member. And what we found is that this is very powerful at shifting people's attitudes. If they had a connection with a person who was connected to that cause, their interest in leaving a gift in a will goes up dramatically. And in fact, in another study, we found that just putting that as an option on the response box uh, where, you know, if you say, I've already included your organization with a gift in my will and adding the checkbox uh, uh, in honor or memory of uh, and relationship with the person, just introducing that idea bumped up the interest for about one out of four people in making a gift in a will. So tribute gifts can be very powerful. In general, when we're in this kind of conversation, we want to use the what I call family language, that is stories and simple words, uh, rather than using our complex technical language to introduce the idea. There's a lot of reasons for that. If I had another hour, I would dive into all of the reasons why that's so much more powerful. But we want to emphasize that simple language. Don't get legal. Don't get technical when you're introducing the idea. We want to introduce it with simple language. The next thing to keep in mind is that it is important not to count it and forget it. These are revocable gifts, and all of the evidence we have shows that for the charitable component, there is a lot of fluidity in that charitable decision, uh, in particular in the last three to five years of life. We see that from U.S. data, which is actually longitudinal data. So we are tracking the same people, adults over 50, year after year after year, seeing if they have a charitable component in their estate plan. And the retention rate uh, over a 10-year period is about 55%. Uh, and so it is something that actually becomes much more fluid at the end of life. So remember that legacy gift is a beginning uh, to a process that can lead to resources for the organization. It is not the end of the process. It's great to get in the plan early. Those gifts tend to be much larger if they stay in the plan or even if they leave but come back later, but we have to stay with it to the end. So what does the data tell us about when charitable plans are added? Well, when we look at the top 10 predictors, number one is actually approaching the end of life. Becoming a Number two is becoming a widow or widower. Three is being diagnosed with cancer, decline in self-reported health, divorce, diagnosis with heart problems, stroke, um, first grandchild, increasing wealth, or increasing giving. When we look at the factors that predict when people had a charitable component in their estate plan and then they dropped it, very similar list of factors. Number one was decline in self-reported health, approaching death, becoming a widow, a widower, uh, divorce, diagnosis with cancer, heart problems, stroke, first grandchild, first child. Now, what does this mean? What it means is that plans destabilize when either death feels near or family structure changes. So you get a negative diagnosis, you engage in new planning. Your family structure changes, first child, first grandchild, divorce, widowhood, uh, you change your plan. If there was a charitable component in the plan before, there's a good chance that uh, there's at least some chance that the new plan won't have that charitable component in it. Maybe just that the organization uh, slipped uh, slipped the, the person's mind uh, at that particular process. It may not be a change in relationship, but we do see a lot of uh, fluidity. We also see this from Australian data where 60% of charitable wills were signed within five years of death. Here's the most important thing to remember. Of those people who are actually going to transfer dollars to charity at death, we can go back and look at their lifetime giving. And if you go back 10 to 15 years before they died, most of them were substantial donors, a lot of them even volunteers. But in the last three to five years, uh, most of them uh, were not doing those things. The problem is so many organizations go radio silent right at that most critical moment of decision making 
because they communicate based strictly upon recency of donation. So if I could offer you any advice, the last piece of closing advice is do not do this. Age stratify those folks who have a lifetime in connections with you, and once they hit whatever your magic age is, 75, 80, whatever you can afford, make sure you never stop communicating with them. Always stay in front of them because it is a very powerful trigger as to whether or not they're going to remember you when they sign that final document. Well, that's the end of my time. I hope some of this has been of interest to you and always happy to share. Please do connect with me on LinkedIn. I share all my stuff for free and uh, happy to do that anytime. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. I hope you found that um, interesting and enjoyable. Thank you, Simon, for the intro before that. Um, it's very true. Dr. Claire Routley is the, is the true expert and I'm just here to kind of Not make up the numbers. So I thought I'd play um, the chair role. Um, I've seen that video a few times actually. And every time I see it, there's, there's so much to kind of learn mm. and unpack. Um, I, it'd be really great if we could answer any specific questions you've got. So I know we've had one question come through from Sarah. Um, if anyone else has got any burning questions, please do pop them in the chat and we'll pick them up. Um, just while we give you a couple of minutes to think of those questions, though, um, I just wanted to let you know about a brand new bursary award that we have launched um, at Legacy Futures in January. We're open for applications and it uh, closes at the end of March. There's loads of time. But basically, if you're um, looking to invest in yourself or in your organization to grow in, in legacy giving, then check out our bursary awards. You can find out about them on our on our website, which is legacyfutures.com. And um, we have three awards. So the, we have the Crispin Ellison Award, which is investing in people that, that work in the area of legacy administration. This is in memory of one of our former directors. And we'll be funding two people with um, training from the Institute of Legacy Management up to the value of £1,000 each. So you can complete your certificate in legacy administration or your diploma in legacy administration. Um, our second award is our um, Legacy Future Leaders Award. And this is investing in people that have kind of recently joined the sector. So if you're new to a gifts and wills or an in-memory role, and you've been doing that for, for less than three years, you can win a place in a mentoring program, which uh, Claire is part of, as well as um, Kate Jenkins, who's our, gifts in, uh, who's our in-mem specialist. Um, I will be taking three people through that program. And then the final award, which is specific for charities outside of the UK, we've got an international bursary so if you're a charity and not based in the UK, but based anywhere else in the world and you want to grow with gifts and wills or in memory giving, you can enter that one. So it's all free to enter. Um, I'm pleased to um, encourage you to do that. So, Claire, before, uh, before we pick up a couple of um, questions, you made a really good point. You can kind of summarize all the motives mm -hmm. in like three kind of simple ways. Do you want to just to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so often, you know, when we're explaining what people's motivations are to leave a legacy, we talk about uh, looking backwards, then looking around you and looking forwards. Uh, and I think uh, in his discussion, Russell covered all three of those areas. But uh, I can see in the chat, there's quite a few people asking for copies of the video to watch again, because I know there's so much information in there, isn't there? So this is quite a neat way just to help you to remember those sort of core motivations. So all of the, the lovely information Russell was talking about, about people's life experience and the connection to people that they love, um, really falls under that sort of looking backwards area. Um, then we've got looking around you. So, um, again, Russell shared some of the, and I've got to stop using the word interesting or fascinating, but it was really fascinating research around the importance of sort of social norms and seeing that people like you do things like this. So, that falls into that sort of looking around you box. And then we've got the sort of the looking forwards piece, which is really uh, about, I guess, somewhat subconsciously, but, you know, thinking beyond your own death and thinking about how you want to make an impact on the world that will last long, long into the future. So that's the kind of looking forward bit. So looking backwards over your own life and your own personal connections and your own story, 
looking around at what other people are doing and then uh, looking forwards beyond your own death and thinking about the impact you're going to make. So there's loads of lovely research that sits under all of that. But uh, like I said, if people want the sort of the simple summary of what is it that drives legacy legacy giving, it's, it's those sort of three areas really. And there's a great question, great kind of follow on question, I think, from Chrissy, mm. who says um, they get confused with wills and legacies. Oh, yes. And what's the difference between a will and leaving a legacy? And yeah. why are people investing in legacies more? So, yeah. Just, well, so what, what for you um, is the difference? Yeah, I, I guess as well, Chrissy, you point to a, a larger point here around um, jargon generally. And I think Russell mentioned it, but I think it's always worth uh, sort of reiterating that point of uh, um, essentially the more we can use everyday terms and the less that we use, you know, jargon like residuary gifts and pecuniary gifts and all of those things, the the better really. But uh, to your specific point, <laughs> I suppose um, the, the the sort of the easy way of or the easy distinction really is um, a will is how you would leave a legacy. So a will is the kind of the legal document which would um, include gifts to loved ones, to uh, organisations like uh, those that we all work for. Um, so essentially, you need to write a will in order to leave a legacy. It's kind of the legal instrument. But I think, um, Ash, Chrissy also asked, and this might be a good one for you, uh, why are people actually investing in legacies more? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, the will is the is the how, isn't it? How to do it. Mm -hmm. But the underlying motive of wanting to make a lasting difference beyond your lifetime, which is all covered in um, Professor James's research and the wider research, that's the kind of core motive, isn't it? And it's how people do that. One way that people do that is by leaving gifts to charity in their wills. Um, and they do it in lots of other ways, lots of kind of other fascinating ways as well. Um, but why why are people investing more? That's a really great question. And I think the, the, the big answer is a, a kind of real rational, practical one is that um, the value that's coming to charities from legacy giving, from gifts and wills is growing and it's growing quite strongly and it's expected and projected to continue to grow. So we've got some, particularly in the UK, but it's repeated in other countries. We work in the Netherlands. It's the same there. It's the same in Australia. It's in Canada, across Europe. We've kind of got quite got demographic changes. So we've got aging populations of people that are just starting to come to the end of their life, the end of their lives. And there's more and more people dying. Um, but then they're, they're kind of a new generation and they're more charitably minded. They're more likely to leave a gift to charity in their will. And they tend to be generally wealthier. You know, they've managed to buy a property. They maybe own some shares. And so the the values of people's estate is, is growing over time. And the proportion of people that are dying and leaving a gift to charity is slowly rising. So it's still, it, by a long way, it isn't the majority of people maybe about 15% of, of wills um, that are going through probate in the UK have a gift to charity in a will, but the values are growing. And I think what we're seeing um, is we're seeing the overall total value of gifts and wills rise. So in, at the end of last year, end of 2023, we think around about £4 billion was given to charity, which is a record amount. Um, but we think that's going to double over the next kind of 20 years or so as this kind of generational change happens and people start giving. And they're giving to really different charities and causes as well. And I think a, a real opportunity is we're seeing that historically maybe legacy giving tended to go to, to a few really big charities. Mm. Um, but now we're seeing thousands and thousands of, of smaller, local, different kind of cause areas benefiting. So I think that's the re real reason why people are, are investing more in legacies is because there's, there's a real opportunity. And I guess it's a moment in time, um, this kind of generational change, these people that are coming to the end of their life, starting to think about making wills, thinking about including gifts to charity, and are going to be doing that now. And we'll see that kind of play through over the next, yeah, kind of 20 years ago or so. 20 years or so. Mm. So I think it's, a, it's an exciting opportunity. Um, Brilliant. So I, a, a great question from Beth, Claire, is, you know, lots of, lots of particularly smaller charities may not have lots of money, lots of budget mm. to do. So what can you do that doesn't really cost anything? How can you get started? 
Another really great question, isn't it? Because uh, one of the things that I love about working in legacies actually is there's a lot you can do for almost sort of next to nothing. Of course, there's you know people's time, etc., that's uh, invested in this. So um, the absolute classic approach to legacy fundraising is um, you know the drip drip approach, which is basically where you look at what you're already doing, and then you look at how you integrate legacies within that. So, if you've already got things like, you know, social media channels that you're talking to your donors through, if you've got newsletters or e-newsletters, um, good old direct mail, if you've got spaces you can add, you know, tick boxes and that kind of thing. Um, so, I'd say that's a, a great approach, obviously, when you've got relatively limited budget, but it's also great Um from a sort of uh, slightly more strategic or theoretical perspective as well. So, uh, you heard uh, Professor James there talking about um, don't lead with death, you know, uh, that uh, if it's sort of very, very obviously death related, it'll turn people off. So, actually, you know, if people are just reading a, a great story about some brilliant work that you've done and then you happen to have a line in there that mentions that, you know, a big chunk of that was funded through a legacy, you know, obviously, you're, you're not leading with death. You're talking about the, the work and the impact. Um, and the, the legacy is is sort of uh, supplemental to that. But you're just sort of planting those seeds in uh, in people's minds. So it's great from a sort of not leading with death perspective. Um, we also, again, you know, as Professor James mentioned, there's lots of different things that drive someone to uh, go and write wills and leave legacies. You know, lots of things that are sort of going on in their lives. Generally, we as fundraisers aren't always aware of those. So, um, again, if you're sort of drip, dripping that message little and often, uh, the likelihood of you getting it in front of someone at a time that's relevant for them is uh, is more likely. And I think the other thing it does as well, which again speaks to uh, Professor James's point on uh, sort of normalising the legacy and making people think that people like them can do this. Um, Again, it just helps to, to make legacy seem like a normal thing to do that uh, people that support your organization, lots of those people will do it. So, you know, as well as being a sort of cheap and cheerful way of promoting legacies, there's also, you know, good reasons that that is the sort of the, the classic approach. So, I would, I would say start from thinking about, okay, what are we already doing and how do we sort of slip legacy in there? But is there anything else you would uh, suggest on that one? No, I, I definitely agree with that. Um... And I think you know. Start. I think we need to start. Firstly, just start by talk. Start by talk to, by talking about it. Often, mm. it, people uh, maybe supporters haven't really thought about it because actually we, it isn't something that we've mentioned. So, it is start to kind of use it in the general communication, letting people know that it's it's is one of the ways that people can give if they want to support us. You know, you can make donations. People leave gifts and wills. People do other things and kind of make it normal and part of the way that, that people give. But I think to take it a step further is. And I don't think this take this doesn't cost money, but it certainly it takes time. Is to really think about, articulate and communicate your vision. So, what is it that you are all about as an organisation? What are you seeking to do? What are you trying to solve? And and let people understand how by how leaving a gift in their will can help to achieve that. Because we know people want to, they want you know both this sense of wanting to leave leave a legacy they want to help do something big something important something that's you know an important thing in their life so by by being able to communicate that and you could you know write it into a, a simple you know uh document brochure or a web page you know get it get get some presence on your website that's a really helpful thing because mm -hmm. if, if you're starting to talk about it the next step is someone wants to kind of then think about a case of you know, what difference will my gift make and how, you know, and then how can I do that, which is, becomes very practical. Um, yeah. So I'd suggest that. And I think a really valuable way is start to kind of gather stories. If you can find people that are already thinking about considering leaving a gift to your organization, which might need to kind of start from maybe a few active volunteers or members of your, your trustees or whatever, who are kind of willing to do that, getting them to share their stories and, you can create a really simple, easy, you know, uh, mm -hmm. video that you could share on on your social channels. Just start kind of sharing those stories. Really helps people to engage with them. Yeah. Um, so just looking at a couple of other uh, questions, there was a really good one. So there's a really good one that's from Valerie. I think is you know how do we create permanence when we mm -hmm. can't promise that we can use a future gift in a specific way? 
you know, so someone wants, might want to leave a gift in a will to a specific project, but or you know, in a specific country, but it's 20, 30 years in the future. How do we kind of overcome some of those problems? Yeah, I mean, there is the option um, of permanence through some sort of memorial to the donor. Um, and it was something actually I explored in in my research. I found it really interesting because uh, I, I started conversations or started talking about this area with people by saying, would you like your name on the wall? Um, and theoretically, you know, people should like that because people should, you know, all the research says we like permanence. But what was really interesting was most people that I spoke to went, oh, no, I don't like that. Oh, that sounds awful. Um, and they would generally say it seems a bit like you're showing off. Uh, it feels a bit sometimes like you've almost got, got no friends to actually remember you. So you need to sort of plaster your name on something in, in great big letters because uh, you, you kind of won't have achieved that remembrance in in other ways. But then what was really interesting, I remember being really confused by the fact that no one wanted this because the, the theory says they should. But then when I went and sort of uh, analysed the, uh, the conversations further, generally what people would do was go on and talk about something that they would like. So they said, oh no, I hate the idea of my name on the wall. But uh, they said they did like things like, um, one lady said she visits the Yorkshire Sculpture Garden and she said, as you go from the car park to the main building, there's uh, bricks in the floor and those bricks have got names on. And she really liked those those bricks. Um, and then other people talked about things like um, theatre seats with names on and tree planting. Um books of remembrance, all of those sorts of things. And I thought, actually, what's really interesting is they don't like the idea of their name up there in, in lights sort of thing, looking like a showing off. But they did like the idea of their name being part of a generous community of donors. So it was the idea that actually, you know, okay, someone in the future might see my name amongst all these other names. But uh, generally, you know, other people won't particularly look at those those names. But Almost like, you know, I know internally that it will be there. And again, it's not sort of positioning me as an individual who's, as we said, showing off in some way. You know, it's actually positioning me as part of this community, which actually, again, ties into some of the research that uh, uh, Professor James was was talking about. Again, you know, the importance of feeling like you're uh, you're part of a community. So as well as thinking about, I suppose, the work you do and how that work can provide that that sense of lasting impact, you can provide a sense of uh, permanence through memorials as one option. But I'm sure you've got some thoughts on that one as well, Ashley. <laughs> no, I think that's, they're great. I, they're great examples, actually. I think um, the I've actually been to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and seen that, and you wouldn't actually know when you're walking it. I think it's like a cast iron walkway, but in, in mm. it, is you kind of it just looks like a pattern, but you look closer, and it's different people's names. So I guess the public wouldn't know it, but you would know it. Yeah, and it and often it's much more it isn't. The, yeah, and it's not even necessarily for you. Often for yourself, it can it like in memories a really strong motive, mm -hmm. isn't it? So it could be your mum or your dad or your granddad or yeah, and actually knowing that they're kind of immortalised in some way is in a probably a place that's got real personal meaning to you. Yeah. And a couple of other charities that do it really well. Um, the RNLI have got a product that's called Launch a Lifeboat and you can essentially pay to have a loved one's name written on physically on one of their lifeboats. And you they're quite small little names so they can fit a lot of them on. There's probably thousands and thousands on it. But you know that your your gift and the thing that you're doing in memory of your loved one can go on and Mm. do something amazing and every time it's launched you know you know it's potentially saving someone's life um and guide dogs have a really nice offer for um to when somebody has has died and then left a gift to the charity in their will they offer the family the chance to to name a puppy in their memory and then they keep in touch and they let them know how the puppy's training's going and where it's gone to and the difference it's making mm. so i think this is just picking up a a question that's come from Christine, you know, what do donors respond to? And I think that is one yeah. of them, knowing that I guess your gift is going to make a difference. Um, yeah. The kind of impact, seeing the impact of a gift, yeah. which often isn't easy from a legacy point of view because it's in the future and you, yeah. you don't get to see it yourself. Yeah. And I guess to Valerie's point as well, as in terms of the perhaps more of the, you know, the work that you're doing, it's um, it's often about sort of presenting that that big vision for the future. 
And that's, uh, you know, that you will hope to achieve, but probably won't have been sort of ticked off in 20, 30 years. So it it might be less about, you know, building a school in a particular country, but actually more about the idea that your gift will help, you know, every child to have a, a you know, the best education that they possibly can. I'm sure you can express it a bit more elegantly than uh, than I just did there. But it's it's really sort of pointing to that, uh, that big vision, I think, you're trying to achieve rather than necessarily the kind of the nitty gritty detail. And again, there's, I don't think, uh, unless I missed it, Russell talked about this specifically, but there is wider research out there that essentially says when we're thinking about the much longer term, we do tend to, to think in a more visionary way than we do when we're thinking about, you know, giving a gift uh, today. So I think that's that's maybe one way as well of, uh, of helping that sort of create that that sense of uh, of permanence. Just picking up as well on Christine's question around you know what works. So we did a we did a piece of research it was a couple of years ago now, wasn't it, Claire? Where we mm. we mystery shopped the top hundred uh, charities legacy. Well, we, we we kind of posed as an inquirer. So we were mm. said we we're interested in leaving a gift to your charity can you kind of send us some information i think the big one which everybody can do and actually is hugely overlooked is just mm. get get the kind of basics right yes if somebody comes to you and says i'm interested in doing this you know respond to them i think a third of the, <laughs> those charities just ignored us didn't come back to us and then some of those that did it maybe took ages uh, it took a month you know it got lost in the inbox and mm. somebody eventually picked it up Sometimes they spelt our names wrong or, you know, just some of those really basic things. If you're somebody's coming to you and they're thinking about doing this thing, which is a really big thing, you kind of want to feel like you're being listened to, um, you know, that this organization yeah. is going to take care of your gift in the future. They can kind of take care and deal with your initial inquiry, you know, well. Yeah. And then I think going on from that, it's, we summarised it in five, there was kind of five eyes, weren't there, Claire, yes. that were really important. And I'm forgetting what this we is going to be a now. test. <laughs> it was like information, yeah. inspiration, integrity. Yeah. And a couple one of them of was, was getting the basics right, but an eye, yeah. and I forgot what we, <laughs> which eye we used for it. But uh, yeah. So yeah, um, just looking at a, a couple of other questions. Shall I chip in with just a thought on Christine's while you're doing that, Ashley, yeah, on, on the, please, the stewardship yeah. piece? Because you say, um, you know, what do people respond to when it comes to stewardship? And we have done some work in this area, actually, and it does tie in with um, wider research um, results as well. But, uh, you know, the big thing, I think, that's come out and every project that we've done that's involved an element of trying to understand what, what people want when it comes to stewardship is really being treated like an individual. So um, it was that sense of, you know, I'm not just a number on a database. I am an, uh, an individual who's sort of valued as, a, as an individual person. And it feels like I've got a bit of a personal relationship with somebody, you know, and it was things like, I guess it goes back to Ashley's getting the basics right in a way, but it was things like, you know, if I uh, write a little note on the bottom of my donation form, you know, sharing something really important, like, you know, my husband died of this disease or whatever it might be, that I don't then get back a sort of bog standard thank you letter that doesn't, uh, you know, acknowledge that that comment. People, what they disliked was the sort of thing that makes them feel like a number on the database. And then, as you might expect, I suppose, conversely, what they liked was just those almost like, again, not expensive things, but little magical moments where someone sort of showed that they'd uh, heard them and they'd listened to them and um, you know, they added a little note or they sent them a personal email. You know, it, it's just those those little things that I guess to some of the other questions that are about, you know, what you do with limited budgets. It was almost that, you know, showed someone actually valued them as a person as opposed to, um, you know, necessarily getting a big shiny pack. It was, uh, um, you know, being seen and appreciated and making a personal connection with somebody. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think from the research we've done in stewardship as well is that not everybody necessarily wants it or wants it so, in the yeah, same way. Some people just maybe need some practical help. They're making their will. Um, they want to know, you know, that it's done in the right way, that they've got maybe some the right wording to put in. And then that's, a, that's it. Um, others kind of don't even want to have any contact with the charity because there's a sense of, well... I might, this is a private matter. I might, might change my mind. I don't want to feel almost like indebted to you if you know this, but there are a proportion of people who really do want the charity to know and they want to be engaged and they want that kind of long-term 
feeling of like connection and relationship and it's so, so you kind of need to give people the opportunity to like handraise and let you know really what are they looking for from their ongoing stewardship relationship so that you can tailor that to them and make it right for them mm-hmm. um there's a, a really good question from leona which is um i guess it's getting into kind of strategy of who should who should target yeah. audience and who should you be reaching and engaging so if you've got some budget um, should you be spending it on kind of external facing campaigns where you're reaching, I guess, the, the general public or should you be focused on your warm supporters? Oh, yes. You know, my immediate reaction to that is um, if I had limited budget, I would go with my warm supporters because I think like many other areas of fundraising, you know, it's always more sort of cost effective to uh, focus on people who are warm to you. But um, again, linked to Russell's point about how fluid legacies are, and I think he mentioned his research that said something like um, the 10-year retention rate for legacies is about 55%. And I know in the UK, legacy foresight's research has shown something like um, only about 50% of people who say they will leave you a gift in the future ultimately leave you a gift so in a way I might even you know be controversial and narrow it down even further and say you know if my budget was really limited um, I would actually really focus on stewarding those people who've already expressed an interest in legacies make it even tighter uh, just to go off on a small rant and I, I think this is one that you were, you agree with Ashley <laughs> um, say, a shared yeah. rant <laughs> but, I mean, start yeah. close you know if you've got yeah. people that are already engaged they're, they're giving whether that's their time yeah. or their money then you want to be talk. You want to be having a conversation about yeah. why they might might want to consider a gift in their will as well. And I think often you can maybe go to the more the wider kind of campaign route because maybe it might feel easier. Um, you know, I, I we can put something out on Facebook or we can tap into a wider kind of campaign. But actually, we need to. We need to engage those that are kind of closest to us because they are mm-hmm. definitely the best best prospects first and foremost. I'd also say it probably depends on your cause area as well. Yeah. So if you work if you're working for an organisation that just does have general reach and you think, you know, thousands millions of people are touched by cancer, for example, then there's definitely an opportunity where you could, you know, go out and, and maybe start and reach and engaging. But I'd say once you've done that, but I totally would agree. You almost there's there's different stages and focus on those that are already uh, have expressed some kind of interest in gifts and wills first and foremost then those that are connected to your organization and then maybe the wider world yeah it's probably the way to go and we do know don't we Ashley as well you know although my first reaction was absolutely you know go for those who are who are closest to you we do actually know again from foresight's research that for a lot of charities again about half of the people that leave them gifts are not necessarily known to them at least in data terms don't we so for as Ashley said you know, it'll vary by causal area but we do know you know a lot of people get these sort of surprise gifts from people that uh, I think that obviously there is a connection but they they don't always know where those connections are so it's I suppose when you get into those outer circles it's quite good to think about um, you know maybe people who have a connection that might not sort of be sitting there on your donor database so um, again you know this has to be appropriate and done ethically, but uh, maybe people have used your services, pe- the families of people who've used your services, um, you know, people in the local community, if you're a, a, an organisation with a sort of particular local presence. So, um, yeah, I will uh, not completely retract my first answer, but, you know, we do know we do know that those sort of uh, the people that, that are a little bit more distance are, are also a good audience if, you, if you've yeah. got the sort of the time and resource to reach out there. So... That's a good point. So there's a, there's a good question from Sarah and I'll, I'll maybe I'll start by picking this up. So it's, it's about virtual events specifically. Um, are they good for inquirers, pledgers, given that they're spread around the country and I guess what should be in them is a talk from a chief exec or a specialist mm. right thing to do. So, I mean, I've, I've personally held, um, not for a while now, but lots and lots of, event, of events, um, legacy events. And I think, Virtual events have kind of come, I think they were really a COVID thing when they yeah. couldn't actually get together with people. So lots of charities pivoted and started doing them online and some of that has, has remained. 
I think the thing with, with events is there are, they can be a really good kind of engagement and stewardship tool, for, especially for people that have already told you they've left a gift or they're thinking about it and they want to find out more. Um, or even for people that just may be open-minded. I, I think they're good for two reasons. Is One, that we know that there's good research that kind of shows that legacy donors, they like to feel part of a community and that mm-hmm. opportunity to get together with other like-minded people who are um, you know, interested in this, in the cause and also maybe thinking about a gift in the will is is a really good thing, and they can kind of it reaffirms their decision and what they're doing. But also, they kind of want to feel because you know if they've made a decision to in- include a gift in a will to this charity to this cause, then it's obviously something that's got a lot of personal meaning to them. They want to be able to get closer to it. So in the uh, past, like the National Trust, great example, they. Yeah been doing events for years but they can you kind of get special access to the property you know you get to go behind the you know the rope that is kind of out of bounds to everyone else so you get to meet the head gardener and kind of find and learn more about the cause so creating those opportunities are great I mean I know from personal experience of doing it that there's a there is a kind of point especially for um, either you live too far away so we would kind of find that if you were more than I think 30 miles or like an hour's drive from wherever the event was, mm-hmm. people just didn't come. They, they weren't willing, you know, they just, they weren't able to travel or if they were a bit older, um, I think it was certainly over, over the age of 80, there was again, a real drop off in people that could come. Mm-hmm. So I guess virtual events, if people are, it does open them up. It makes it easier to potentially connect. Now it's not for everybody. And I think you lose all that personal connection and engagement in a virtual setting than you would in a natural real place. But if it allows you to connect and reach with those people, then, then great. And then I think in terms of what you talk about, ultimately, again, people are really interested to, to just not get to know the, the cause, what are you doing? You know, so if the CEO is the right person to do that and communicate that, then great. But I don't think necessarily people are desperately looking for a talk from the, from the chief exec. You know, it might be that you've mm-hmm. got a great medical research program and you want to get one of your uh, medical researcher in there, even a PhD student or something who's maybe being funded by a legacy so they can actually see the work in action. I think that's a really important thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, any tips from yourself, Claire? Yeah, um, I can see comments from Sarah in the chat actually saying um, you only had four people that actually came to an event. Do you know what though? One of the very best legacy events that I ever went to was a really small group. Um, it was a, an open air museum that I was doing some work with and they had a, a solicitor come and do a talk about um, updating your will. Uh, and then they they took everyone sort of out of the main building to go to their store. As Ashley said, another example of sort of stepping behind the velvet rope and getting to see behind the scenes. Um, but actually, the fact that it was um, a really small event worked worked well. I mean, obviously, it's not going to work if you've hired some huge hall and it feels like it's sort of four people shoved in a corner there. But um, it meant you had really great conversations with those you know four or five people we had at that particular event. Um, you know, so they they were able to ask all the questions they wanted to, feeling very comfortable with the, the solicitor that was in the room. Um, there was the walk over to the, the store where these uh, these particular objects were that they could look at. And again, you know, just everyone was sort of chatting about their plans because, again, it was a, that sort of small, intimate environment. Um, and afterwards, actually, a few of the people that were at that event went to that specific solicitor to update um, their wills. And obviously, a solicitor couldn't give uh, you know personal details or anything like that. But she uh, she did mention to the charity that uh, a couple of the people that had been at the event had put the the charity in their wills. So it was a it was a small group, but it was you know a really hugely productive group. So. Um, so Sarah, you know, I wouldn't necessarily see it as a bad thing that you've got a you know a small number of people that you can have deep conversations with because you know if two of those four put a, a gift in their will, then actually, um, you know, if we're talking in very sort of stark critical investment terms, actually, then that's uh, that's still probably a you know a brilliant return. So you know, small can be sweet. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. It's always tricky getting a balance. You know, you um, I think you have to have a real strong hook. You know, why is someone going to come? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, people want to 
they don't want to feel like they're wasting your time, you know, and, or you've spent lots of money on this thing and there's only four people there. But mm. I totally agree with that. If you've got four, if those four people leave you a share of their estate and that turns into, you know, an average of what we know, 50,000 pounds each, mm. that's an incredible amount of money and opportunity. Um, so I'm just looking at the time and I know we're, we need to wrap up. Um, there, there's, I'm sure there's more questions. I guess what, what we really would love to talk to you about is, um, joining us on the, um, 16th of February, where we'll be partnering with fundraising everywhere for the second, um, legacy fundraising virtual conference. And we've got a great lineup, um, the theme this year is all about integrating legacies. So it's all, all the sessions are legacies and something. So we've got legacies and major donors, legacies and digital. We've got legacies and language where you can kind of learn some more of the, where we're going to unpack some of that stuff that Russell was talking about earlier. We've got legacies and the cost of living crisis, legacies and career development, legacies and ethics and, and more and more. So, please do come and join us. It is an absolute bargain. It's free if you're a Fundraising Everywhere member, I believe. If you're not, there's an early bird. Um, at the moment, it's, I think, just over £51. Even when it's full price, it's only £75. So really affordable. Loads of great speakers and, and more kind of being booked. So um, I'm sure the team at Fundraising Everywhere will share with you how to kind of join up and, uh, and book. But we'd love to see you there. Um, and you can ask loads more questions. So I think that's it. So thanks everyone. Um, I hope you found that useful and I hope we'll see you there on the 16th of February.